the end of 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 31, walking through the 13 verses uh, of that chapter. We're also at the end of the election season. Now, as a preacher, I love to uh, make music and um, the sermon and all the elements of a worship service uh, match up with each other the best that they can. Uh, But this I did not plan, and so this is one of those cool... God things, at least it's cool for me to see how the election season in our country has coincided with um, this book down to the very last uh, week here. So it's pretty cool. We're going to be talking about uh, our theme really for the whole book, which is Jesus is King and making him King in a democracy. What does that look like in a democracy? And so um, let me ask you this, and you don't have to respond, but you can shake your head or whatever you want to do. How do you feel tonight? Election night, it's over. Um, I think in general, most people are surprised. Um, but how, I mean, what what was going through your mind last night? Some people last night and this morning, they are hopeful more so than ever that things are going to change, whether it be economically, whether it be uh, your health insurance premiums going down, whether it be uh, immigration. It could be all kinds of things that they put their hope in. Others are super sad today. Um, even in the church, you've got folks on both sides of that fence. Um, well, then you got... Well, you're in a whole, you're in a whole other group of... Uh, yeah, well, makes sense. I think we've all... Um, We've, we all have a whole bunch of different thoughts on uh, on what the best decision in the election process was. But now that we're on this end of it, um, I wonder if this is kind of how Israel felt. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when they asked for a king like the other nations, and they got one. Now, I imagine some people were pumped uh, when Saul first came in. I imagine some others were not. Some were probably um, feeling pretty great about it, and then it was a healthy thing. Others, not so healthy. Uh, but I think the bottom line is, to sum up the entire book, any time that you put your hopes or you seek in other people, whether it be a king, a president, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a parent, a co-worker, whatever it might be, whenever you Put your hopes and dreams in them and not the Lord. You will always be let down. So now that we're post-election for our country, we actually have to do something. I remember this weekend uh, being at a wedding and I wasn't officiating it, but I was just there with uh, my wife and it was a beautiful wedding. I don't know if any of you all have been to the Masonic Temple Um Regardless of your views on the building, it's a, it's a beautiful building uh, when you're on the inside. I'd never been there before, and this wedding was picture perfect, and they had the bride, of course, comes down these stairs, and everything's marble and taking pictures as she's getting to the bottom of the stairs, just like Cinderella stuff, and, and it was beautiful. But in this short 10, 15-minute ceremony, uh, they did not mention God in the service one time. No, no... Uh, scripture reading, no prayer, no, no anything. Never even said the word God. And I remember um, I told Tara, even halfway through, I said, this is so hollow. And that's how it feels. It's hollow. 
And so last night, you could get pumped up, you could be sad, you could celebrate, you could do whatever, but without us as believers taking a stand and actually living out our faith, we're the ones who include God in this. Like a vote cannot include God in our nation. Then it would be, if we don't step up, just as hollow as that God less wedding. So as we walk through this, I want you um, to be thinking about how we, and hopefully this passage will contribute to helping you understand how we add um, or make Jesus the king in a democracy. Now, I have to say this, and this is going to sound odd, okay? If my wife was here, she would feel really uncomfortable at this point. I've got to give you a disclaimer, and, and this is one of the, this is one of those I'm going to be talking a lot about our nation in contrast to the kingdom of God. Now, I love living in this country. So please, and this is the disclaimer, please know that I'm not trying to put down our nation or democracy or any of that. As far as living on earth goes, I think we got it about as good as any country can. And so I don't, and you're going to know as I walk through this tonight, you're going to know, please know that the only reason it might sound like I'm not painting a democracy in a beautiful light is because it's in contrast to the kingdom of God and nothing looks that great in contrast to the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So if you don't know that, you're going to look at me, you're going to look a couple times, you're going to think to yourself, does he hate America? No, I love being an American and living in America, all that good stuff. But the kingdom of God is even better. So let's walk through this tonight. Actually, you know what? Let's sum up. Um, I forgot I had this slide in here. Let's sum up some of the things that we've walked through up until this point. Chapters 1 through 7 in 1 Samuel were a theocracy, meaning God reigns through spiritual leadership. So they had priests, but they didn't have a king. They didn't have a president. And so the people and the priests had to submit to God, and God was uh, their king. And then in chapters 8 through 12, you see the monarchy. Monarchy meaning that there is one singular king, and he's leading over them. And Israel demanded one like the other nations. And of course, in chapter 13 uh, through 15, the first king, Saul, he was elected, so he reigns, and he was rejected. It did not take very long for him to fail. And then half of the book, chapter 16 through 31, we see the second king anointed and introduced, David. He is not yet king. That doesn't happen in 1 Samuel. That happens in 2 Samuel. Uh, that's how 2 Samuel kicks off. Uh, but you see the rise of David's influence, and you see the fall of Saul's. So that's what has brought us to this point. All right, chapter 31, verse 1. We're going to stop several times along the way tonight. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Let's stop right there. That's a very simple verse. But the first thing we see is evidence of a godless nation. Evidence of a godless nation. Now, here's why we see that. Because we got the context of the first 30 chapters behind us. What we know in a theocracy, and that when God leads a nation, is 
he has made it incredibly clear for the Israelites. When they seek him, when they want his guidance, when they honor him and bow down to him and obey him, he blesses them. He wins their battles for them. And it is a very clear-cut division there. When they don't, as we see in chapters 4 and 5, the Philistines win the war and beat them up. That's their enemy. But when they submit to God, God blesses them. This was his pact, his covenant with the Israelite people. And so the fact that the first verse in this very last chapter simply says, the Philistines won, they beat up Israel, tells us a lot. It tells us a lot. It tells us that Israel's come to the point where they essentially don't have a God. Or at least they're not seeking him in a way that honors him. And he's letting them fall to their own devices. They've basically become a godless nation. I think uh, the USA probably has signs. Of course, again, you watch the news any given night and you see signs of sin abounding in our nation. Signs that we might not be as Christian of a nation as we all would like to think. Of course, you hear that said a lot uh, that we're a Christian nation. We don't only have um, a good chunk of our population who, who exalts sinful behavior, and it's not even simply a disrespect of God thing, but people straight up hate him. <laughs> people hate believers more than ever in our country. I don't say that for us to have a pity party. I say that to simply suggest that we seem to be spiritually more divided than we've ever been. Of course, you look at uh, last night and the division you see even on social media and the results and the things people say about each other in our own country. And it's not very pleasant. So let's ask ourselves that question. Are we a Christian nation? Because some of us grew up saying that over and over. We're a Christian nation. Look at the Constitution. Look at our founding fathers and our principles and all that. Well, we're no more a Christian nation as this building is a Christian, right? Like it houses Christians, but this church building can't be the church. It's a building. And who's the church? We are. And so when it comes to whether we're a Christian nation or not, it doesn't really matter what our documents say. It's about the people within this nation. It doesn't matter what our history says. It's about what the people today are choosing to do and who they're choosing to submit to. So it's pretty much in flux as to whether we're a Christian nation. But here's the beauty. And there's hope in this, that you look both Old Testament and New Testament and how God views the family and nations as a whole. And it doesn't take the whole nation to bow to Jesus for God to say, I'm not going to destroy it. I, I, I call it holy. For example, Genesis 18. Remember that story? Sodom and Gomorrah? What, what does Abram say? Surely there's at least 50 People who follow you, you won't destroy it for 50. God said, no, I won't destroy it for 50. 45. I wouldn't do it for 45. 40. 30. 20. 10. And then God just walks away after that. So the idea that, you know what, if there's even one believer, one person who submits to me, 
I'm going to have mercy on it all. You look at the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's instructions for marriage. And he says, if you're married to a non-believer and they'll stay married to you, what are you supposed to do? Stay married. Why? Because in God's eyes, if there's even one person in that household that's a believer, the others benefit from God's mercy on that household. That God says, you know what? If there's at least one of you, I'm going to call you a Christian home. And so the question really isn't, well, is the president a Christian or are most of the people in this nation a Christian? God has put the responsibility on the individual. The question is, are you following Jesus? Are you submitting? Because what you choose to do today determines whether this is a Christian nation. What separates Christians in election season isn't that we vote Republican the majority of the time or that we talk about morals or, or even that we say over and over cliches about how this country is going downhill. No, that doesn't, that doesn't make or separate Christians from the rest. It's reflecting what King David did. Because Saul, he's shown us for 30 chapters what a bad king does what makes a godless nation. David, he has shown us what makes the Lord king of Israel. So there's four things, and we're spending a little bit more time on this first point because it sums up and sets up a lot for us tonight. Well, the Philistine, that, that don't matter. We're talking King Saul. And then David will be king in 2 Samuel. So we got four things that we see David has done. Number one, he's shown us, if you want, if you want the Lord to be king in a democracy, which they were not, but we are, so we can apply it. David, number one, sought him in all things. That means Jesus, if you want him to be Lord of, if you want him to be king of this nation, he's got to make the decisions on an individual level and on a national level. I, um, I went with Tara and Silas to see my family uh, last weekend, and we went to a little state park. My parents live uh, by a state park, Tuttle Creek State Park, and they always take their lab um, their Labradors, their dogs down there and run them each night and just essentially let them run around the state park. And, and so we were walking along and Silas, he is scared of these dogs because they're actually pretty chubby. Like they are fat dogs and they're big. And for him, a three or two year old, it scares him. And so he is clinging around my neck as these dogs get close to him. And I love it as a dad. This is what I live for. And so it's not um, hurting my feelings that he's a little bit scared because he's clinging to me and he's getting slobber on his legs and all over the place. Now, when the dogs were running around us as we were walking, he stayed right by my side. But then the dogs started to go way ahead of us. And even though all of our family was together, Silas started to drift. And he got to the point where we said, Silas, where are you going? And he started to go off in the forest a little bit. He said, I'm going into the forest. We're like, what are, you, what are you doing? There's nothing out there. There's, there. Literally, you're just walking into trees, buddy. Come back. And he argued with us about it. 
until he saw the dogs running full bore at him from way down the street. And he freaked out and he came sprinting back. And I picked him up just in the nick of time and the dogs jumped at his little feet and he clung to my neck. He was scared out of his mind. You see, that's how two-year-olds cling to their father. It is only in the time of need. But mature adults recognize that you stay submitted, you stay together all the time. And so if Jesus is going to be Lord of your life and Lord of this country, King of this country, we've got to not only in the bad times seek him, but like David, in all things seek him. Number two, he obeyed him in all things. Now David had his flaws. He, he, he made plenty of mistakes. But in general, he was a pretty obedient guy. Even to the point where in last chapter we saw he was fulfilling 400-year-old commands to take the promised land from the Amalekites. People that the judges and the kings, um, excuse me, Saul before him could not or would not do, David was fulfilling. Obedience is a big deal. Number three, he didn't bend on conviction. He acted on his conviction. The Spirit moves us. If Jesus is going to be king, we've got to make sure that we stand for what we believe. Of course, we see that David, when given plenty of opportunity to kill, to kill Saul, doesn't do it. Why? Because he knows in his heart of hearts, do not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. He had conviction and he would not act against it. He acted on it. And number four, he honored God. Remember way back when, um, where he, being in the middle of nowhere, wanted to honor God by taking part in a feast. So he goes into the local farmer and the farmer said, no, I don't think so. And then the farmer's wife said, no, 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 no. We'll give you everything you want. David honored the Lord in all things. Who and what you exalt becomes king. This is how Jesus becomes king in a democracy, is when his people obey these things, not limited to, but at least these things. Verses 2 and 3. And the, excuse me. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchi Shua, the sons of Saul. Remember, Samuel, coming back from the dead, had said, you are all going to die within 24 hours. Saul had to know this was coming. The excuse me. And the battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So it was custom for them to mutilate their kings that they would conquer, uh, whether it be genitalia or decapitation or just mutilation of the body. And he says, I don't think I want to go through that. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So the issue of suicide, some might say, Saul killed himself. Is this a biblical foundation? 
that in the right circumstance, if given the lesser of two evils, like, is suicide good? Context. What's Saul known for? He's known for doing everything wrong. <laughs> so just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we're, it's an advocate for it. It means this is bad. Read 1 Corinthians. The whole thing is all about what not to do in life. Verse 5, And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Just like God said. Number two, we remember that Jesus doesn't disappoint. Jesus, when he's king, he doesn't disappoint you. But, these last few verses are all disappointing. How many of you last night, when you were watching that election, and you are thinking, wow, we're going to have a new president. You had like all kinds of different hopes. Again, I mentioned a bunch of them earlier, economy, um, healthcare stuff. You had legitimate like excitement about some changes that might be made. Now, how many of you, Assuming that you had a little bit of excitement, maybe. How, how many of you thought it was going to end up like this? <laughs> now, now, keep in mind, I'm not saying or wishing or uh, even insinuating that it's going to end up like this. But guess what? In chapter 8, when the Israelites asked for a king, did you think they thought it was going to end like this? No. And what I'm saying is, again, not, not that it should end like this. but it's going to disappoint you. Because a worldly king, a worldly president, at worst can lead a nation to disaster. At best, lets us down when they die. (laughs) Even if they are great. There's still disappointment. There's still disappointment. But there's not, when Jesus is your king, there is not when Jesus is your king. People don't like to be disappointed. We don't know how to respond to it. Many of you probably um, don't know this building was an election site for a whole bunch of years. And so we have people in this community that whenever there's a local election, major election like yesterday, they come in. Like yesterday, I probably got 12 to 20 people throughout the day just randomly coming in and, and asking about election stuff, and I'd point them down to the Methodist church. That's where they do it now, and blah, blah, blah. And some of them, they were cool with it. They're like, oh, wow, okay, whatever. And I would meet them at the door, and so they didn't have to walk downstairs and find out, and they would leave, and they'd be like, cool, thanks for the heads up. But some of them, those who were a little bit older, those who had been coming here to vote for a long, long time, like they, they had a hard time accepting it. There's one lady, this was actually a couple months ago for another um, kind of local election, she came in and she said, is this a place to vote? And I said, oh, no, ma'am, this, this is not, but you can go down the street. She said, no, this is a place to vote. And she started to kind of argue with me, and I was just trying to help her. And she said, um, I came here to vote every year for like 40 years, and I was here last year to vote. Of course, I, I was here last year at this time. And I said, I, I promise you, <laughs> I promise you, you didn't, you didn't vote here. If you did, I don't know that it would have counted um, very much. And she said, no, I was here to vote, and I've been here to vote. Are you sure? 
And then she started to ask, like, was there anyone else around here? Like, like maybe that I'm just not credible to say this isn't an election site. And I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm the pastor here. I, 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 know, I promise you this is not where you vote. You see, people, even something simple like that, they don't like to be disappointed. Right? Think about all the things that you hope in that disappoint you. What do they have in common? I'd be willing to guess that they can change, that they're perishable, that they're things of this world. All those things ultimately are going to disappoint you. Again, when I was at that wedding Saturday, Tara and I were kind of disappointed, but we went to uh, the reception. And again, God didn't join the reception either. But um, the DJ, because this was the end of the K-State game. And for those of you who are following the K-State football game, it was like a couple seconds left. They were three-yard line. They could have scored a touchdown to win the game by one. Like, it was kind of exciting. And everyone in the weddings, you know, checking their phones. And the DJ announces like lifetime and I knew I thought oh no this isn't going to be wise you know because some people do not want to be told you know because they they TiVo it whatever but he let us know um that hey they they lost and you know as a fan like you just kind of get it's like a gut punch like I shouldn't care this much but you do some feel that way about KU basketball others K-State football whatever the case may be and when we left, I remember I was feeling kind of junky because I was like, gosh, you know, we got this wedding that doesn't have God in it. Tara and I were driving. I said, and then K-State, they lose. And I told myself what I wanted, <coughs> what I wanted was to, to think about the next day, Sunday morning. Think about the church services. And just I told Tara, I said, I just want to invest myself in the church because I'm so sick of being disappointed today. This has been such a lame day. And then I told her, I said, but you know what? That's, that's the temptation is to get your hope set on something to be disappointed, a relationship, a job, school, whatever it might be. And then you just go to something else perishable and you put your hope there. And so some of us are just in a cycle of being disappointed by things that were meant to disappoint us. Not that we can't enjoy things, but if they're perishable, they will let you down. You see, I love the church, but even the church will let me down. I have days where the people are nice and they're sweet to me and everything's great. And I'm like, these are wonderful days. And then there's days where people aren't super nice and not super sweet. And they don't seem like they want you around as much. And so then those days obviously disappoint you. And then you say, well, I'm going to shift it and I'm just going to pour into my family. You ever been there? Just say, I want to get the world away. I'm going to close the doors to my home and I'm just going to invest in my own family, my spouse and my kids. Guess what? I hate to be depressing, but we're all going to die. <laughs> How's that feel? How's that feel to you guys? This is such a Ryan sermon, is it not? We're all going to die. This is the great hope, huh? That's why I wore this fancy, these clothes to make you feel better. Because if you're looking at something that uplifts your spirit, the words out of my mouth won't hurt you as much. Everything that is perishable disappoints. 
but Jesus doesn't. You see, maturity in the faith is that you can walk in a perishable world and have your hopes set on imperishable things. Do you experience that? Do you find yourself walking through the day saying, man, I, I, I have got my eyes set on the Lord. I've got my eyes set on the Lord and I'm not going to be disappointed by God. In Revelation, when we see Jesus coming back, you want to know what the title of Jesus coming back when he's riding a white horse, you want to know what his title is? Faithful and true. That's what his name is. Like that's just who God is. Like his name is faithful and true. He just doesn't disappoint. Verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, so these are guys who were not fighting with Israel that day, but they're Israelites. And those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Next thing we see is that Jesus offers a better home. Jesus offers a better home. Think about this. This verse seems very simple. But what is happening? These Israelites are picking up and leaving what? The promised land. This is not crazy. You read about unleavened bread and the exodus, and it's all about them leaving what? To go to the promised land. Slavery. And you're like, that makes sense. Yeah, leave Egypt and slavery and go. And you got the promised land. They're in the promised land. This is how bad things have got. They're in the promised land and they abandon it. Smartly, wisely. Because they know it's over. There's no hope. We're literally going to pick up and leave our homes and what we've been doing. We were working the fields today. We, we were in the machine shop. We were doing things with our hands. We, we have crops. We have things that we're counting on. We're just walking away. Like someone else can come. They can wear my clothes. They can sleep in my bed. Like this is Goldilocks and the three bears gone horribly wrong. Like they, they're leaving and they're not coming back. And the Philistines are coming to live. This goes against everything that we were taught. Man, they walk away from God's promises. Why? Because the land ain't that great when Jesus isn't king. The land is not that great when Jesus is not the king of it. One reason we love elections, we love this nation, is because we love the land, don't we? Oh, land of Tisithia. Like we, we, we are born and bred to love the land. Some of us, especially with uh, farming backgrounds, you're, you learn to take care of the land. You see it as your job, your desire, your passion. You love the land. How many of y'all, when you were growing up, had Kansas Day in school? Did you guys do Kansas Day? I don't know if this was just like a small town Kansas thing or if everyone did it, but we did it. This was a big day for us, Kansas Day in elementary school. We would all dress up. There'd be guys who were like Wyatt Earp, and, and there'd be other guys who were dressed up as different things, and we would do reenactments and all kinds of stuff. You're taught, even as a young kid in a small town, to love this land, take pride in this state. And even today, I think my family enjoys this land 
probably as much as anyone. Half of my stories that you guys hear involve uh, Tara and Silas and I going to some state park. There's 26 of them in the state of Kansas. We hope to go to each one and enjoy it. We love to be outside. We go to the historical sites. We want to know about the history. We want to know where, how this thing got settled and everything that's happened in the last 150 years in this land. And yet, we feel, and maybe you do as well, strangely unattached. Do you feel unattached to this land? Why? Because we know our citizenship isn't here. We know heaven and earth will be made new. Philippians 3.20. Paul says our citizenship is where? In heaven. That's where we go. I didn't grow up going on vacations because we just didn't have a bunch of money. But uh, Tara and I have gone to... um, the beach a couple times, and even this last summer when we went to Michigan and took Silas, it was the first time that I'd ever built a sand castle. I don't know, anyone ever do the sand castle thing? I feel like you got to in your childhood, and if you don't, you're going to grow up and just want to be a big kid and, and build sand castles when you go. And so I was doing this for the first time, and we were there for several days, and so we had built several of them, and I was starting to really enjoy it. And you know, if you get a dude involved with anything like this, sand castle building, um, it's going to get blown way out of proportion and become uh, something much bigger than it should be. And so I was making all of these pillars and then stacking them on each other. And, and it was fun. And at first it was just me trying to help Silas know how to build a sandcastle. Then I started getting defensive. I built a moat because the stupid water was getting in. And, and Silas, he lost interest and he went off and did his own thing. But every time, at some point, him being a two-year-old, at some point, and me building these sandcastles, he would come out of nowhere and just demolish it. Like, he would come and just demolish it, and he loved it. He would jump on it, whatever. And it kind of hurt. Why? Because I invested in it. I, I learned to love what was being built. That's what it's like when you put too much hope in this land, both physical, symbolically, Sand castles. And when you've got uh, a castle in heaven, you don't get caught up in sand castles on earth. We've got a better home. Everyone says when every election comes, you know this is the biggest election yet, right? And each time, they're probably right. But the truth is, millions of years from now, when we're smack dab in the middle of eternity, when we're at the feast with Jesus, when we're singing holy, 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 when we're bowing down at the throne, this will be but a speck. This nation, it's overwhelming to us right now. The last 24 hours, isn't it overwhelming? We're tired of talking about it. We're tired of thinking about it. And it's going to be a speck on the timeline of eternity. Verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head 
and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Fourth thing, we see if you want Jesus to be the king, even here in a democracy, you remember that Jesus will not be mocked. He has been, but in the end, he will not be mocked. What do we mean by that? Well, here in these last few verses, we see the customs of the people were often to take body parts, to take the kings, to take the leaders who were slain and put them back in their temple. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 5, Dagon, the god, this god, Ashtaroth, is, is a, a Gentile god of fertility. But Dagon was this god that was some kind of fish thing that we see way back in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines had taken uh, Israelites and put them there. And, and then, the, or it was the Ark of the Covenant, excuse me. And what did God do? God made that thing fall over several times in a row to bow down to it. You see, that was the custom that it would be taken, whether it was the Ark of the Covenant or uh, the leader's bodies, and it was going to be in front of the idol, and it was a sign of submission that we and our God have conquered you and your God. How far they have fallen. That this book started with God saying, you get me anywhere close to those idols, and I'm going to crush them. All the way to... Now the Philistines just chop off noggins, staple them to the wall, and Dagon's still standing. Ashtaroth's still standing. Why? Because they have rejected God as the king of their land. They've rejected him. They must have been convinced. Think about it. If you're a Philistine, and you remember that story, it wasn't like that terribly long ago, this would have been their lifetime still. You remember chapter 5. They must have been convinced the God of Israel was not with Saul or this army because they are desecrating them. Of course, if history repeats itself, every great nation will be mocked. Doesn't it feel like ours has been mocked the last year and a half? This whole election cycle has just been mockery, has it not? We mock each other. The candidates, what are they best known for? Mocking each other. It makes us feel sick, but then we get on social media and half of us partake in the same sort of stuff. The very least, we just get used to it. Other nations, <laughs> Russia, some of these guys, they mock us. I, I would guess whether you're 20 or 60 in this room, You've probably never experienced a time where America has been mocked as much as it has in the last year. Worldwide. Maybe people are angry with us, but mocked. You see, you get mocked when you have flaws. And when the other person, the person doing the mocking, is absolutely convinced of their superiority. You don't mock someone you expect to get beat up by. You mock someone that you feel like you can get away with. There's been a lot of mocking. 
Every moral failure, every bad leadership decision has been obviously embarrassing. But you and I, again, we learn from an early age to fight for our nation, do we not? And I'm pleased, please, please, please. I told you that this disclaimer, I got to pull it back out. This has nothing to do with, with our troops and fighting for freedom and all that stuff. Okay? But just you and I, even in daily conversations, fighting for democracy and sticking up for our constitution. I think there's a level of healthiness and of obviously thankfulness for those things. But have you, have you ever, maybe even here in the last year, kind of thought to yourself, maybe we get mocked because we're not that great. <laughs> there's a reason why Trump's slogan was make America great again. Maybe we're not that great. Maybe, maybe the whole system, you know, any political system on earth is going to be flawed by design because it's on earth. But you look at so many of the things, and I might get in trouble for this, so I might bail halfway through this sentence, okay? You look at so many of the things that conservatives have been upset about, whether it be terrorism from specific religions, Islam, whether it be laws being changed, and, and not just equality in terms of race and gender, which I would hope most of us agree, but then marriage laws being changed so that everyone can marry whoever, essentially. And we say, we got to get back to our Constitution and our founding documents, because right? that's the purity, right? Guess what? We are back to those founding documents. They allowed for everything we're experiencing. Christians have just benefited because we were the majority. But it was setting us up for a time to where when we as Christians are maybe a minority, any other religion can come and have freedom. And when it comes to equality and laws, even marriage, Conservatives and certainly Christians can say, well, I don't think that we should pass a law like this. But in, if, you just, if you weren't a Christian and you just looked at the Constitution, Bill of Rights, you'd have a hard time saying, let's deny these rights. And I know some of us don't want to come to terms with that. And please know that I'm not advocating for those things. But what I'm saying is what we've been putting our hope and faith in and documents are not as pure and perfect as we thought. They're not scripture. They're man-made. You see, God's kingdom doesn't need to be held up by the hands of men. And so when America gets mocked, we all what? are taught to defend it. But when God gets mocked, he doesn't need us. And on earth, Jesus was mocked. Why? Did he have flaws? No, because he showed himself to be a humble servant that mankind hated. And so he was mocked. And Christians on earth, guess what? We are going to be mocked. (laughs) But when Jesus comes back, he will not be mocked. And Galatians 6-7 says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. 
you reap what you sow. Let me just read to you why his kingdom is so attractive to focus on and to want to be a part. In in Revelation chapter 1, this is John's experience seeing. Keep in mind, this is his best friend. (laughs) You You ever seen your best friend get a makeover? You think, oh, you look a little different. Check this out. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, so that would be Jesus, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice, I love this, this is his best buddy, by the way. His voice was like the roar of many waters. You ever heard a tornado come in? They say, well, it sounds like a train coming. And the idea of his voice being the roar of many waters. In his hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. How many of you can look straight at the sun and be okay with it? They can't. See, that's what Jesus' face looks like. And this ain't even the part where he's on a white horse coming with a whole army of other people on a white horse. He ain't going to be mocked. Jesus' kingdom is attractive because we don't have to defend it. But this kingdom on earth, you've got to defend. Let me ask you this, just church terms. If you're going to be part of a local church and the pastor's casting vision, would you rather be part of a local church whose vision is to stay small and stay basically the same and keep the status quo? Or maybe a, a vision like Cross Points, which is, let's be honest, kind of ridiculous to reach 10% of the state of Kansas, 270,000 people. Which vision do you want to be part of? Even though the one seems crazy because it's so big, beyond. I would guess most of us would want that. Why? Because we all want to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. Something that our own two hands don't have to hold up. Something that is of God and not man. There's a reason why we get mocked here on earth and in this nation. It's because we're flawed. But God won't be mocked. Verse 11 Our last couple verses, and we'll wrap this up. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Last but not least, honoring Jesus equals living on mission. How do we get there? Well, in these last few verses, here's what we see. Way back in chapter 11, there was a story about the Philistines coming and essentially telling the men of Jabesh Gilead, these guys right here who just went on this rescue mission, that we were going to overtake your land, and in seven days, if you didn't figure something out, we were going to poke your eyeballs out. And it was embarrassing, humiliating. And in chapter 11, these men, weeping, 
were heard by Saul, who went and rescued him. This was his first rescue mission. This is when Saul actually did something good. And now these men seeing Saul's death say, okay, we're going to honor you. We're going to honor you because everyone deserves a proper burial. And so what do they do? They go 15 miles one way. They cross over the Jordan River. They go into Philistine territory and they go into their God's temple. And they tear down the bodies. They're courageous. You see, if you love this nation, I'm talking both the USA and the kingdom of God. You don't just focus on how to be a good American. Just like if you want a healthy marriage, you don't just read 50 books on how to have a perfect marriage. Or a good friend, 10 books on how to do everything great in a friendship. No, if you want to be good at these things, you get things right with God. And when this is healthy, everything else becomes healthy. And the pressure is taken off of those things. And so if you really love this nation, and you say, I want to honor God and I want to honor this nation, then you, like these men, say, you know what? I'm going to align myself with righteousness. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to go on a mission. I'm going to go on a mission. What was this election going to accomplish? I said on Sunday that voting, although really good, and again, we encourage you to vote because we want to influence people. Voting doesn't make one disciple. Voting in and of itself can't fulfill one command of Christ. Only the people in this room, God's children can do those things. So the election at best, at best, let's just deal with the results. Regardless of who is elected, at best, the election gives us the freedom to do what? Fulfill the mission of Christ. To make disciples. What what does it matter who's in office? It, It doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican. If we, the church, don't live on mission. Listen, I went to a funeral today. Again, hence... A super sweet sport coat. I went to a funeral today in Hutchinson of an 82-year-old woman who 10 years ago, her husband and her poured into me. When I was deciding what to do with my life, when I was suicidal, when I was going to church, but I couldn't quite decide if I believed in Jesus or if I wanted to commit and all those issues that 22-year-old kids go through. They poured into me, not knowing what I would ever turn into Certainly, probably not believing I would ever be a preacher. And they poured in and said, we're going to disciple this young guy. Both pre-salvation and post. When I had nobody else in my life. And I went to the funeral of Pat Hoffman. And I saw hundreds of people. Some wearing suits and ties that they, she had influenced. Others looking kind of rough. And all these people gathered together, all with one thing in common. Not only a love for her, a respect for her, but in many cases, they'd been discipled by her. That's 
what I want my funeral to be. I want it to be a gathering of people who have entered the kingdom of God because I gave my life to the mission of Jesus and made disciples. Some of them I got to pour into for a few minutes. Others, a lifetime. But regardless, I aligned myself and I said, I'm going to give everything I have because when I get to heaven and all the perishable stuff is gone, I'm going to see one thing and it's all imperishable. And it's going to be the other disciples I made and the Lord I worship and all the other saints that went before me. And so she enters into glory a few days ago and is met by saints that poured into her. And one day she's going to see the people who gathered at her funeral one by one enter into glory and be reminded. (laughs) And I guarantee if she could speak right now, She'd be saying something along the lines of, it was all worth it. And if I had to do it all over again, I would emphasize more and more and more to preach the gospel, to pour into other people, and to get rid of all the perishable desires and the earthly, worldly focus and just make disciples because that's all that matters. Who are you going to take from the perishable to the imperishable? You see, this whole book, as we wrap this up, this whole book emphasizing that Israel wants a king and that we know Jesus is king. Here's the irony. Jesus is already king. He's already king, whether humans like it or not, whether they bow down on earth or not. But one day, every knee will bow. And there will be no election to determine Is it this person or this person? Because it has been predetermined. And so our choice is to bow down now and to serve him here. And when you, regardless of what's happening in your life, when you bow down now and you choose to serve him here, you just made Jesus king. And if Jesus is king of your life, he's one step closer to being king of this nation in this world. And it's all his. It's all his. This book comes to an end. This chapter, this book is over. But the story is just getting started. Both as we read further on with the Israelites, and for the people in this room, in this state, in this nation. Let's pray.